Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to another episode of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sometimes sticky filmmaker and now completely baffled by The Exorcist 2 again. And joining us this evening, he is the director of The Swerve. Pleasure to be joined by Mr. Dean Capsalis. Dean, hello. Hello, Mitch. Hello, Andy. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely. And also giving me a reason to, for the first time, watch The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. <laughs> uh, until the other day, I hadn't seen the film in quite a few years. So it was uh, it was a pleasure to go back to. And it was a strange experience. <laughs> Yeah, strange as a word, I would say. Um, yep. Now, when we were talking about um, which film you wanted to do for this, you did settle on this pretty quickly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background with the film when you first came across it and things like that? Yes. I came across the film when I was a teenager, and I'd, I'd heard as a long time, you know, horror, sci-fi, uh, film and literature and art. I'd heard about Exorcist too, and um, had never seen it. I, uh, I think it was my brother who told me, he's like, yeah, it's really bad, but you'll see it sometime. And and I'd seen the first one and thought it was it was terrifying and great. When I did finally see Exorcist 2, it, it struck me as everything I had heard about, that it was ridiculous and it was a mess, but I was uh, immediately fascinated by it. I thought it was like this grandly ambitious movie. And the, I remember watching it for the first time and thinking uh, like about Lovecraft and other writers that, you know, it, touching on, on several philosophers and, and ideas that I'd never seen in a movie before. So I thought it was a really fascinating and sort of beautiful hallucinatory mess. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's everything everybody said it, it is and was. Uh, it's ridiculous and it does not hold a candle to the first film, but it's so different from it. And it's so strangely beautiful in places that to call it one of the worst films in the world or ever is to ignore its ambition, and and I, I think coming from one of the era's most interesting filmmakers, you know, who dared to explore such grand themes, you know, on such a big canvas, I think is to is to sort of do it a, a disservice. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree. I mean, I in advance of this, I decided to. I was originally going to double bill them, right? Okay. Um, and I eventually decided that I wouldn't. It's been a couple of years since I've seen The Exorcist. I've seen it a few mm-hmm. times. But I kind of figured that with things like this, where the original is so iconic and yeah. so kind of revered, I kind of thought that it might better inform a viewing of The Exorcist 2 if I did let it sit in isolation from the original. And I don't know whether that did it any good or not. I'm not sure. I certainly, I agree with you that the kind of like worst films ever made thing we loved around is ridiculous. I think that it tries some things that don't necessarily suit me personally, but I agree with you. I think that like it tries a lot of incredibly ambitious stuff. That's exactly it. I mean, it, it, compare it to The Exorcist and there's no, it, this is... It's not frightening. It's not a scary film at all. And after re- you know reading some things uh, about what John Borman, the director, you know he 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 was offered the opportunity to direct The Exorcist and declined it because he thought it was terrible. He thought it was it was about torturing a, a child, and so he went on to do Deliverance, which is a great movie. And I think The Exorcist is a great movie. But Borman's intentions were to do something you know very very different and it's more along the lines much more along the lines of Zardoz his other grand mess but which is also very ambitious you know I don't think they're traditionally seen they're not good films in that sense but they're so interesting to watch you know if you if you can go back to it you know go back to Exorcist 2 and see it separate from the Exorcist then I think you'll be more open to its sort of sort of insane world that he lets you in on you know it's very dreamlike mm-hmm. the actors seem to be in different films I mean Richard Burton seems to be doing Beckett and you know and I mean it's all over the place tonally but it's so interesting though you know once you once you get past all that garbage all that stuff going on like what you know I think it's it, it's it's fascinating mm-hmm. yeah um Andy yes what 
was your background with this? I'm assuming I'm going to hazard a guess that this wasn't your first viewing of this like it was for me. But um, how often have you revisited this? What was your opinion on it going into this watch? Okay, um, to answer the question how often I've revisited it, the answer is not that often. Um, which I'm not... And Maybe I didn't give it the viewing that it was due until now. Until you haven't watched something, I guess, with a kind of critical eye for something like this, it's quite easy to get just kind of stick it off to the side and forget all about it. But uh, I had actually seen uh, The Exorcist way when I was way way young. I think I mentioned on the show before that a friend's big brother, like their parents were away, and a friend's big brother had us watch The Exorcist and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the same night when I was about twelve wow. or something like that. And then um, I had seen The Exorcist three before I ever saw The Exorcist 2. In fact, I only saw The Exorcist 2 when I got like this triple box set thing of 1, 2, and 3. And I, I watched it a couple of times, and I was never entirely sold on it. But I had seen Deliverance, and I had seen Excalibur, and I had seen Zardoz. And only watching it again now, like I mean, it feels very much in line with, I guess, those those being kind of the biggest films of Berman's back catalogue. Um, it feels very much in sync with that stuff, but it also seems like a very kind of earnest attempt to expand the mythology of the first film yeah i agree with that as well i think that like um whether or not you agree with the direction that it pulls the mythology and the kind of world building that it does i think that it's commendable for the amount of stuff that it tries to do dean before we get into the kind of meat of this conversation we make everybody who comes on the show do one thing um and we're gonna ask you to do it as well um (laughs) Um, it's for the benefit of anyone that is listening that hasn't seen The Exorcist 2. Andy has got 30 seconds on the clock, I hope. I have. Yeah. Okay, cool. Dean, I'm going to count you in. We're going to ask you to uh, give us your best 30-second synopsis of The Exorcist 2. Okay. How do you feel? Uh, let me take a breath. Uh, okay. Good luck with us. Um, yes. Okay, right, here three. we go. Three, two, one, go. Four years after the exorcism of a teenage Reagan McNeil and the death of Father Lancaster Merrin, the Vatican sends the self-doubting Father Lamont to investigate. Reagan, now under psychiatric care, is questioned by Lamont as to whether she remembers any of the horrifying events. The investigation unwittingly awakens the ancient demon that still resides within Reagan. This sends Lamont on a globe-trotting quest to save her and destroy the malevolent spirit that threatens the world. Time! Wow, that was Excellent. great. That was on. Thank you. Yep, very, very good. Now, you did mention the um, the uh, the self-doubting priest who we meet immediately, Philip Lamont, played here by Richard Burton. A really interesting performance, like you said. I think mm. um, it doesn't sit at odds with everything that's kind of going on around it, but I think that what you said about people like, feeling like the actors are acting in different movies, I think that Richard Burton is the one that feels the most divorced from everyone else in this at times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I, I mean, you know, to watch it again, and after not having it s- seen the film for quite a few years, uh, it works better with me now. And, uh, you know, and it really, though, it's such a huge contrast between Richard Burton's acting and Linda Blair's acting. You know, it's it's very, it's very strange. It's, you know, Linda Blair reminds me, it's very, very 70s sort of style of acting. And Borman seems much more comfortable with Richard Burton in a strange way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned, and uh, the first time I saw Exorcist 2, it was, um, there were two cuts of the film that I didn't know about. The, for years, uh, the, the cut that I saw was apparently the international cut that uh, is 102 minutes. It's 15 minutes shorter than the, the cut that was in theaters, at least right. here, I think. And, and it's quite different. I only saw the, the full version of it a few years back, maybe 10 years ago. And I was surprised by it. And I actually like the international cut, the one that, that John Borman removed 15 minutes from. It has a different opening and it has a different ending. And the big difference, spoiler alert, is that uh, you know, it, it takes out a lot of the, the air and sort of like the ridiculousness of a lot of the segments. One of the biggest things is the ending, which is really kind of hilarious in the, in the full cut. Uh, because Lamont lives at the end of it and goes off somewhere with Reagan. And in the international cut, he's dead. Yeah. And uh, it, it ends on a, a, a freeze frame of Reagan. And I think it works much better in the film. But, you know, I guess people have different reactions to it. I think you should see both. But I think that the, the shorter cut works better. Okay. Um, this seems like a reasonable juncture to ask then. In what way is the opening different? Do you remember? Yeah, um, I actually watched both 
cuts of this. My head is unfortunately swimming with both of them. Uh, the, the, the full director's version opens immediately after the credits with Father Lamont, Richard Burton's character, inside in the interior of an unnamed uh, South American. It looks like some sort of church, although it's, you know, with all these colorful lights. In the international cut, there's a really, uh, I think, a beautiful exterior of a steady cam shot of, of a camera going up these steps, and you see a cross and an overview of this church and this city that looks like Rio de Janeiro. And then it goes inside with Lamont. It follows Lamont inside, and I think it's a really nice entrance to the movie. And it also, prior to that, in the international cut, there's a prologue with Richard Burton's voiceover, where he, he speaks about uh, Father Lancaster Marin, and it shows these still shots from the first film and makes that connection. It, it works better. It's a little more sober and doesn't immediately throw you in like it does in Exorcist 2 with the death of this, uh, this burning of this uh, possessed um, young woman. Yeah. When you're talking about it thinning out the melodrama and the ridiculousness, because, I mean, that kind of ties in here because the opening in the cut, the, the one that I watched was the 1 hour 56. Um, yeah, sure. Version. Yeah, me too. And, I mean, the start of it, I mean, I think it sells you very well on his, like, self-doubt and that kind of things, but there is this unbelievable bracing high melodrama to the whole thing particularly when her dress catches fire and she burns alive there's like an inherent silliness to that that yeah. i think that when the film's kind of at its weakest it's when it leans too far into those kinds of notes i don't know if i agree with you there mitch because i think there's an equal amount of kind of theological hand-wringing in this as there is in the exorcist i just feel like it's more obliquely painted in this one than it is in the exorcist i'm on um, i see both sides to that it is rather you know melodramatic uh you know and I, it, my immediate like reaction to it is well why don't they just jump on her and <laughs> and put the candles out. You know, why are they all just standing there? Why are they afraid that they're throwing candles on her? I mean, especially Father Lamont. It's like, what are you so afraid of? So I think for it to happen right away when we don't know who the character is, you just see, you immediately see Richard Burton in a priest costume. And uh, and then immediately, and, and within seconds, the girl is, you know, burned alive. Uh, so I, I think it would have worked better had there been some more leadway into that. Yeah. And also, I think they're trying to immediately make a connection saying, oh, well, we have to show some sort of possession in this film. And, the, and Exorcist 2 has, I think, several possessions in the mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. but none of the garish spewing and, and effects that are present. It's much more, uh, I don't know, it's more, it, it seems to me like they're trying to make these connections and they're also like, hallucinations but you know like he's not Borman's not interested in the exorcist material it seems like he's only doing it to help the studio and to say oh oh well fans will will go along with this if we show some possessions if we show mm-hmm. some of this but i think it hurts the film yeah i mean like i'd probably be inclined to agree i think and when you put it like that i mean it does it, it they probably are just trying to get people on the train early you know yeah and we do rejoin um a now 16 year old regan at this point yeah. who is i think it's fair to say doing better than the last time we saw her <laughs> um uh, she's know, she was doing all right at the uh, end of the, the first film. Like she's yeah. she's kind of come out <laughs> on a, a pretty dark night, I think. Um, and she's certainly in better spirits at the end of the film than she is kind of midway through the first one. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's true. Yeah, she's being observed still by uh, Doctor Tuscan, Jean Tuscan, right? Yes. Uh, they're kind of trying to pick apart what's up. It seems like her recollection of all of the events of the first film are incredibly hazy. I think that I enjoy the psychiatric and the kind of leading into like the synchronizer machine and things like that. I think that those are the elements of, the, of this that I probably like the most. Wow. Yeah, I think that that was one of the things that uh, caused the biggest um, consternation amongst certainly fans of the first film going into this one was that it all felt a bit silly by comparison. Um, yeah. So it's interesting much that... Uh, that that was the part that you responded to. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to hear why you found that interesting. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, absolutely. I don't know, maybe this is a maybe this is like a byproduct of having watched it in isolation from uh, The Exorcist. Because I was going in kind of watching it as a kind of different beast. I guess I wasn't maybe necessarily like looking to go all in on possession right out of the gate and stuff like that. And I just, I guess I like the way that it brings you up to speed with what's going on with her. But I don't know. I think that when we start seeing the uh, synchronizer and hypnosis stuff, I don't know. I think that I would... It's really hard to talk about where I would have liked it to have gone or what I think they could have done with that when obviously it veers so hard into the kind of globetrotting and the scope of it widens out so much. But I don't know. I think that like when I thought to begin with that this was going to be like quite an insular story, I was quite on board. Oh, wow. Mitch, did you imagine it then just um, Reagan essentially going to be possessed again and for it to follow a very similar kind of path to the first film? Yeah, I think so maybe actually. And I don't know, maybe knowing nothing about this going in, maybe that's not that unreasonable or unsurprising an expectation. 
Sure. With so many years having passed, many decades having passed from this film when it was released, because when I was reading up on it, you know, The Exorcist was, I think at the time, May, at the time of its release in 74, it was the most successful film of all time, certainly in Warner Brothers history, in the distributor's history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the intervening years, I think it's been, you know, we've had so many different types of sequels and, and we've been more open to it. I think at the time it was really a shock that a sequel that was so different, you know, appeared that really took people by surprise. And they were like, what the hell is this? You know, when the synchronizer, I, I, the idea of it is really interesting. But rather than being, you know, sort of tonally similar, at least, to the first film, which is very sort of gritty and much more realistic approach, The Exorcist 2 is, is it's a strange animal in and of its own. I mean, the, the, let's talk about the, the, the set, you know, which is a little disconcerting, even now for me watching it. You know, the psychiatric hospital, which is like unlike anything I've ever seen in a movie <laughs> or in life. Right. I mean, it looks like you're entering a beehive. Right. It's if yeah. you describe it for, the, for your listeners, it's like a, a honeycomb with all, you know, it's glass walls and there are children all around and they're playing with things constantly in the background, like a big oversized nut, like a bolt, like from a it's like, you know, and they're rolling it around and there's autistic children. And it's very strange. And, and to have Reagan part of this hospital, I'm confused by it. And, and it's fascinating at the same time. You know, and the color of it, it's like flesh colored. It's very weird even watching yeah, yeah. it, you know, the other day. And it's like, what, where are we? So it doesn't have the feeling of, of the first film at all. It, like where with Father Karras and, the, you know, it's very sort of much more realistic. So it, immediately the balance is tonally quite off, right? So I, I thought, and then suddenly the synchronizer introduced, which would have been probably one of the greatest inventions of all time, right? <laughs> but then it's introduced immediately like as if it's nothing as if yes you can do this immediately and, and go into somebody's somebody else's dreams right in, in immediately by putting on these electrodes which still confuse me why where do the electrodes lead what do they do are they you know i still don't understand it it's like you're watching these flashing bulbs on this machine that looks like a dynamite plunger from a, a, a bugs bunny cartoon right uh, well okay you know and then it's it's blinking and then suddenly it's like well, uh, wait, Richard Burton enters in and suddenly he goes into Reagan McNeil's dreams and then they're trying to save, save the psychiatrist played by Louise Fletcher, right, Dr. Tuscan. And then they're like, quick, quick, her, her heart is being pummeled by this ancient demon. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Where the fuck am I? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very disconcerting. I mean, and I don't blame anybody for saying, oh, wow, this movie is batshit. It's insane. And it's crazy and ridiculous, but it's also really entertaining. Kind of beautiful in this off-the-wall way, uh, at least from a filmmaker perspective, to sort of see this. I know this movie has other fans. I know Martin Scorsese's a, a fan mm -hmm. of it. He prefers it to the original. I know Joe Dante likes it quite a bit. And then I discovered that the director of Mandy, Panos Cosmatos, actually loves the film too. Wow. I'm not the only one, which was, <laughs> which was a big sigh of relief to me. You know, it's like, yeah, so... So I'll shut up and you guys <laughs> Not at all. go on. <laughs> My favourite thing about the synchronizer is that anyone can use it. You don't need any training to use it. Right. It's, anyone can dive in. Yeah, where did she get it? <laughs> where did she create this thing? I mean, did they just make it? And she's like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll try it. And, oh, wait, let's talk about Father Lamont just shows up, right? So he's sent by the Vatican, and he's like, uh, apparently his mentor was Father Merrin. Yes. So the Cardinal sends him off, and then he shows up and, and, uh, at, this, at this very strange hospital. Then we have uh, uh, Linda Blair, and who, I'm sorry, I mean, with all due respect to Linda Blair, who's fantastic in the first movie, it, she seems to be acting like in a completely different film. She seems so un unwilling to be like the Reagan character from the first film yeah. that she she seems to be, you know, like a, another, I, I am an actress and I think Borman's attempts have gone beyond her. I don't think she has a grasp of the material. Um, it's not to say that she's terrible. She's quite young in the film. She looks sure. older than she is. I think she was only 17 at the time. Okay. or 16 but i i think that the material is too much for her for what borman was attempting it just doesn't work she was also notoriously pretty deep into a drug addiction at this time as well so she oh, was, was she? constantly turning up late to set and 
Yeah. Um, I just don't know if she was entirely into it. I know that she um, flat out refused to wear any demon makeup. So anytime you see a, yeah. the demon version of her, it's a, it's a double. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think she might have been quite difficult to work with on this as well. The first time you see her is with these cream colored bell bottoms. And she's like throwing her hair back and it's, she's smiling. And then I'm like, you're in a psychiatrist. You're seeing the psychiatrist and it's like, what? I mean, it, it, it takes some getting used to, and you have to accept that. By the way, the producer of, of my film had never seen this film before, so he, I said, you've got to see some of this. You've got to, so he reluctantly sat down with me, and he put it on, and he just, <laughs> the, the expressions on his face, he watched half the film before he, he walked away. He, he said, I've had enough. He, you know, uh, he said, you know, he was just, uh, he's like, I don't know what's going on. And I, he knew what was going on, but I think he was completely th thrown aback by it, particularly, and I think this is quite, I mean, it's a fun scene, but it, it's really quite an awful scene too, is after they've had their first, you know, attempt at the synchronizer with Father Lamont, mm -hmm. you see Reagan drawing a picture in the hospital. Right. And then Father Lamont sees the picture and it's him. And he immediately comes to the, the conclusion that there's a fire in the hospital. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute. And so Tom, the producer, is like, what the fuck is going on? And it's like, then you see him, you know, take Dr. Tuscan. He goes downstairs in the hospital, and there's a box on fire. And then he starts beating the box with a crutch. And, <laughs> right, right, right? And then Dr. Dr. Tuscan, the camera tracks with her past, I'm not kidding, watch the movie again, past a very large fire extinguisher to a... <laughs> To a telephone. Now, did she take the fire extinguisher? No, she takes the telephone, calls the fire department. Then she takes the fire extinguisher, and then she looks at Father Lamont. The camera pans down to the, the drawing on the floor of the Father Lamont with flames around him, and then looks at Father Lamont, and somehow behind Father Lamont's head are flames from the box. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, there's flames behind him. Then she puts out the fire, which has now spread all around the basement, and then you're outside the hospital with... Lots of smoke. I don't know where that came from. Uh, uh, it's true. It was a very contained fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then two kids on a skateboard go past her, and she smiles. And it's a very strange scene. I, I don't, you know, I, the beauty and ridiculousness of it, I think, work in tandem for me. So I guess that's where I get some of the, the joy from it, is, is the movie is full of sequences like this that are like, well, how did that happen? To make that connection logically is a leap you know you have to take a leap you have to suspend your disbelief and get some sort of pleasure out of that yeah you're right there's a couple of times where you're kind of like that is just a plot driven choice to get this story from a to b yeah but does it work for you i don't think it works all the time for me but i, I mean like, like i said it was a long time since i'd revisited this and you know i didn't mind it tonight i thought it was a little bit flabby at points i feel the air goes out of it a little bit when uh lamont travels to africa yeah um, but yeah, I, I really don't think it's deserving of the kind of worst sequel ever made moniker that it's yeah. been lumped with. Also, like, for, so this sequence specifically, like I say, when he's, he sees this drawing with a fire and he connects all these dots incredibly quickly um, to the fire in the basement. I mean, on its face, yes, it's ridiculous, it's a stretch, uh, it's, like, quite fanciful, but it doesn't not work for me. Mm. No, no, yeah. no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, the, draw the drawings are beautiful. Apparently, Borman's daughter did the, draw the drawing and also the drawings in, in, in Reagan's apartment and that that's a sequence if you don't mind me sort of uh cutting in that's a sequence that i quite like is the idea that this demon is still residing within reagan and that the synchronizer which sort of that attempt the, the synchronizer of helping reagan remember is what also uh not only helps her remember but also awakens this this ancient yeah. spirit and I, I think that's really fascinating. So, I mean, I do, you know, I laugh at, at some of the, the attempts at how it brings across the story, but the, the ideas behind it, I think, are very interesting, uh, you know, and how it brings Father Lamont to Africa and to the, the stone church in Ethiopia uh, and how it ties Reagan into experiencing the spirit again. It's, it's interesting. Like, I, I actually like the sequence where she's in bed and she, you know, she wakes up and the spirit is calling to her. It's, yeah. There's something beautiful about it. It, it. Again, it's maybe not handled in the best way because, you know, but it, it is interesting. Like he has mirrors all over the, the house and all over her apartment. 
And then we're also introduced to this character from the first film, Sharon, yeah. mm -hmm. played by Kitty Wynn. And I actually, uh, in seeing it this time around, I think she's the she's very interesting. She's the mo she's the closest to the feel to capturing the feeling from the first film. You know, she's the one that actually feels like she's bearing the weight of the first film. She's underwritten in the in Exorcist 2, and I don't quite understand why she decides to take on the weight of evil. Yeah. But it's interesting to watch her, and I think the perhaps the, the closest to the tone of the first film is when she she goes with Father Lamont to the house in Georgetown, and they have a dialogue as they're going up the stairs to Reagan's old bedroom. Yeah. And I think that's quite a, a, quite a nice sequence. Um, I don't know why it's there in the movie. Like, I don't, I don't know why Richard Burton has to go to that house in Georgetown, other than I suppose he has to give a, he, she, he prays in the bedroom, and then you see that spirit sort of hovering in the corner of the room, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that yeah. locust, which is kind of striking. I think the big thing, thinking about Sharon's involvement in the story as it is now, is that originally... Every iteration of the script had the kind of main character being Chris McNeil, Ellen Burstyn's character. Um, wow. And when she wouldn't come back, they had to kind of retrofit it and put Dr. Tuscan in there and bring Sharon back. And I think Chris McNeil's character kind of shouldering the weight of evil, like you said, makes far more sense. And I feel like a lot of that stuff with Sharon as a kind of hangover from when they wrote it with mm -hmm. Chris as a main character. Yeah, like still being touched by that sort of like shadow of evil i mean it, it it ties in with the the theme of the film seeing as as how this sort of ancient spirit and and the idea of flight and being touched by evil can change you and that's what sharon is forever changed by her experience in the first film and i think that works for me pretty well i think she gives it a nice gravitas which i unfortunately reagan does not have I don't think Linda Blair, you know, was capable at the time of having the acting chops to fulfill that. So I think Sharon kind of makes up for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd be inclined to agree. I think that like obviously when you say Chris didn't come back, the sensible character for us to kind of like anchor the trauma of the first film to would be Regan, but because that's not really something that you get at all. Um I think that the Sharon character, she does a pretty good job of being this kind of like emotional through line to it. Like you say, despite being quite underwritten. Mm -hmm. I don't question her uh, her participation like in the world, mm -hmm. but I wonder like what is she? Is she her caretaker? Is she Reagan's caretaker? Like when because we, we immediately are thrown in into her uh, like we see her in the apartment, and it's a strange scene when you see like Reagan with these spoons and she's they're watching yeah. tv and and sharon is like immediately tricked by it. she's oh sharon you're such a fool ha 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 and then you're back in the psychiatric hospital and then you know those kind of weird electrodes are put on their heads and it's very odd but it, it kind of works for me i mean firstly i think i always find it quite harsh when reagan calls her a fool that just seems like Quite yeah quite, yeah exactly like, uh, so, she that, that sharon has seen a lot so uh her, the, the things she believes are probably slightly more than the average person would be inclined to believe but i think what she's here doing is she says something about um she wouldn't come back to work with the family for a long time and then she was kind of right. finally persuaded to come back so presumably chris is yeah. still off acting yeah she she mentions that she's uh she's off on some uh on some shoot sharon is left to to care for uh for reagan i wish the film you know the ambitions of it of borman's vision are so big the movie is is you know he had so much money to work with on this sequel that I, unfortunately it takes the viewers sight away from the the heart of what they were maybe trying to get at uh, I, I know that lieutenant kinderman was supposed to have been a played a big role in the film but the actor lee j cobb had died i think in 1976 okay. and so they i unfortunately didn't decide to bring the character back with another actor like they did in exorcist 3 with yeah. george c scott taking over the role so and they never bring up the character of father Karras, unfortunately in exorcist 2 for some reason as if he didn't exist they just say that there were three deaths but they focus solely on Father Merrin, the Max von Sydow character, um, which is, you know, a little odd, but uh, 
<laughs> yeah. You know, and then the, you see him in flashbacks, Father Marin, and mostly in Africa. Yeah. I was watching this under fairly time-sensitive circumstances earlier, and I was trying to write notes. And honestly, when we started seeing Marin in Africa and learning about Kikumo, initially I found it to be quite disorientating and quite hard to get a handle on. No, disorienting. I, that's a, a really good uh, choice of words. And I, I want to know, like, what did you find disorienting? Again, because it had been a while since I've seen The Exorcist. And I kind of forgot about the kind of the way that some of that kind of sets itself at an archaeological, uh, archaeological dig. I kind of forget how wide geographically the storytelling is in the first one, too, I guess. Mm. But also, I think that the way that the synchronizer works is explained quite obliquely. <laughs> um, so when we have Lamont and Regan synchronized, and then he emerges from that experience with a singular goal for the rest of the film. I was like, hold on a sec. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect reaction. Um, so, so, um, so if anybody wants to break down the actual kind of mechanics of what happens in front of us here, I, uh, I might appreciate that. Break down the mechanics of, of, of the segue to Africa? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I can, I, I'll be more than happy to do that. Uh, <laughs> Lamont, who reluctantly is put on this quest by the Cardinal, yeah, played by Paul Henry, mm -hmm. he goes on, the, he, he travels from, from the Vatican to New York, yeah, and then he actually says that the synchronizer is miraculous. And Dr. Tuscan is like, calm down. And then it's like, you know, you're acting like an idiot, you know, but of course, Father Lamont says, you know, I, I must go on this. I must do this. This is incredible. So he goes back to the Vatican and says, you have to send me to Africa. And then the Cardinal is like, what? He takes him off the assignment yeah, and says, yeah. no, no, you're essentially, you're going to go on a retreat. And until you get your head back together, you're not doing anything. Yeah, but turn, your, turn your badge. Exactly. Yeah. So he does. So he's like, well, fuck that. He decides I'm going to Africa anyway. So then what happens? We cut to Father Lamont climbing <laughs> the climbing actually literally climbing the 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 it looks like the precipitous caverns to this rock church in Ethiopia how he found this it to get there is like absolutely incredible because it's it's a beautiful sequence and it's also um, a big leap of logic and, and it requires quite a suspension of disbelief on the viewer's part but then so there he is climbing the rocks and he goes up there, and uh, I guess he, he, I don't, what is he hoping to, he's hoping to discover a connection to Kakumo, who yeah. is the boy that Father Merrin had exercised. We see that for the first time in a kind of, in, a, in that synchronizer sequence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, that makeup that that young Kakumo is wearing is horrific. Like, that's pure nightmare yeah. fuel. Also done by uh, Dick Smith, who did the, the makeup. It's also kind of alarming to see uh, that Max Mancito looking so young because of the old age makeup that he was wearing right, in the yeah. first Exorcist film. When we see Merrin in Africa, they're quite strangely beautiful. And I'm like recalling the first time I saw it, like it was all shot on a set. Mm, yeah. All of it was shot on a set in, in uh, Burbank in, in Hollywood on, one, on the Warner Brothers lot. And I don't know, for me it works because it feels unreal. It feels like it's somebody's, you know, memory or hallucination mm. or dream like and i think it's kind of appropriate it always has this very orange think, gold quality i think the yeah. fact that it has like painted like theater backdrops I think yeah that kind of adds to that dreamlike quality to it yeah i think so the idea of flight the connections that he makes with you know locusts and i guess the, the plagues of egypt and I mean, the first film opens on the archaeological dig in it's in it's in Iraq, yeah. Where and it's done in a pretty much a wordless, it's it's almost dialogue free. The connections that Merrin and the with the demon facing off, and it's quite frightening and beautiful. And then, but the segue that it makes to Georgetown and Reagan, you know, it works. It works, I think, brilliantly. The way that Friedkin handles it, and of course the the connection that Borman makes in Exorcist too, it's it's very clumsy. Mm. I think, like you like you said, it's like it's got the stage like beautiful texture to it, uh, and the makeup is pretty horrific. You know, what did you guys think of the locust idea, Mitch? Yeah, I, I think like as a kind of like piece of iconography and as a visual cue, I think it's kind of cool. And I think that the more you learn about it, when we eventually meet uh, Kakumo a little bit later and things like that, I think that. Yeah, I would say that it's probably something that I warmed up to more 
the more that you find out about it, the more that you learn. Okay. Andy? I'd be inclined to agree. Um, I think at first uh, I was like, what the fuck's going on now? It's just another layer of madness. But uh, I think you're right, mate. You do do learn a bit more. And I guess the the kind of locust being the, I guess, the personification of Pazuzu's evil. Um, I always remember being really jarred by Pazuzu being the name of the demon. It always struck me as a little bit silly. Uh, yeah but it's it's so kind of ingrained now and i guess the exorcist lore that i'm just i'm, I'm kind of into it yeah i mean the, the the demon was never named in in the exorcist and it wasn't necessary it was frightening enough to see just that statue right that figure in the in iraq and then the connection that it's made when you see it again and later in the exorcist too uh in the exorcist that you see the kind of silhouette of it was enough to conjure all these the viewers imagination and really really scare the shit out of you and in the in the sequel he it's more mythological yeah and so by naming it it, it it is first of all kind of silly and i don't think it really helps matters you you just have to go with it i guess after you laugh about it you know you have no choice because the demon is named so many times in the movie and even at the end I, which i i don't quite understand the finale i mean maybe you can help me out but <laughs> it, it is a bit silly if, 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 you're, if you're expecting me to unpack the ending, you are back in the wrong horse, my friend. Oh, I, I still don't quite get it, except that it's both uh, incredible in many aspects of the word. But, you know, what, I guess it goes to Africa, right? And then we haven't even talked about the tap dancing in the movie, right? So then perhaps the most ridiculous thing in the hat is like, you know, Regan. I guess she's in high school, but you're never, it's never, never made clear that suddenly she's taking tap dancing lesson. Yeah, this, this, this I think was like one of the more, to use the word disorientating again, I think that when we very abruptly kind of snap back from Africa to her tap dancing with no preamble <laughs> or any description, um, that was the point where I was, I was just like, this film is just like teeming with curveballs. It really is. I mean, I mean, the dialogue is, is like, whoa, don't, what are you doing? He's telling this old priest in Ethiopia that, you know, they find a body that had been lost with Father Merrin uh, uh, decades before. Father Lamont locates the corpse in, in Ethiopia and the old priest says, how did you find it? And he said, I saw it in a vision. The demon showed it to me. And so then they start stoning Father Lamont. And as Father Lamont is being stoned, a tap dancing Reagan thousands of miles away goes into convulsions and yeah. falls on the floor. We're supposed to make the connection. Which it does, yeah. but it's a very it's a very strange sequence. It, it's suddenly it's supposed to say that Reagan is now fully uh, what is it saying that she's possessed again or that she is you know her memories are back because she leaves. She, she you don't quite know. It doesn't say. I just got that. I just understand. got the impression that it was a byproduct of fucking around with a synchronizer. I was like, look, this isn't machine. This, <laughs> this machine is not meant for the human hands. Like. This machine is yeah. power beyond power. <laughs> Just leave it. Put it in a cupboard and leave it because these two now have a mind meld because they've spent too much time dicking about in each other's brains. Yeah, yeah. So is it saying, is the movie saying that uh, we shouldn't go about, you know, with this? Or is it saying that we all have this fight, this parallel between good and evil that resides with all of us? I mean, that's, that's where I sort of... Yeah. I think definitely that's what the film's trying to say, but I think the way that it tells it is to use the, I guess, the synchronizer as this great balancing device so that we can have this mind meld and we can see the conflict in Reagan and the conflict in Lamont all play out kind of at the one time. I don't know if it entirely works for me on that on on that level, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I for me, I, I kind of I thought that it was kind of just a kind of fairly on the nose way to establish in a kind of laying it on a plate kind of way that they do now have this connection i don't know if i thought it was setting out to do any more than that in the moment sure however i think that we should probably talk about kukumo himself at this point <laughs> oh please um <laughs> Because uh, James L. Jones here, and I think, again, just kind of like handling stuff that on its face could have and in a way does kind of play out kind of slightly ridiculously. He brings so much kind of assurance and gravitas to everything that he does. And this is mm -hmm. no exception. He does look a trifle uncomfortable. Wearing the locust costume and or? Just, I think in, uh, in general, I think he has a, an air of... Uh... I'm not entirely sure about this endeavor. Probably right. Like, you want me to wear what? So the introduction <laughs> is that. So I mean, I, I it's like it's it's a scene. Uh, if I can talk about it for a moment, um, it's a scene that's quite uh, like I wouldn't change it. 
for anything. Mm -hmm. Father Lamont has been shown, he's been taken on an airborne journey by the king of the evil spirits of the air named Pazuzu. And he is shown Kakumo, the boy that he possessed that Father Merin exercised. And, and, and the demon tells him, I could take Kakumo even now. He did nothing. He only gained time. But the, the spirit has time. The spirit is greater. It's a, it's a god form, you know, a mythological creature. And it, it's playing with Father Lamont. And I love that aspect of it. We're taking on this airborne journey with Father Lamont. And it shows him Kakumo. Yeah. And then we're introduced to Kakumo in, in, uh, in that dream state wearing the grasshopper costume. And it, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, it somehow works in the logic of the film once you get past the absolute ridiculousness of it. The sequence is, you know, he... Well, actually, I'd rather have you describe it. Mitch, you, this is the first time that you've seen the film, yeah? Oh, yeah, please, 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 please. <laughs> have at it, Mitch. So, yeah, when he, so when he comes across Kakumo um, in the kind of dream state, you mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like, to, to my eye, he finds him, like you say, Dean, in this kind of, like, cavernous kind of cave mm. where he's sitting with his locust costume on and in front of him there is this, this like, shallow bed of spikes. Yes. They have this exchange where... He basically suggests that by kind of opening this line of communication with Pazuzu to find him, his faith has been compromised. I was not ready for like him to be driven into like a philosophical quandary at this point, but he kind of is. You mean you, um, you came to an Exorcist film and you didn't expect that at some point? No, I obviously expected it at some point, not specifically right there in this instance, okay. I don't think. But... Um, as proof of his faith, as far as I can tell, Kakumo kind of implores him to walk across this floor of spikes, mm -hmm. which he does, and it's, I think, a pretty cool effect and genuinely kind of made me really uncomfortable. And then it snaps back to reality, which we can get to in a sec, of kind of the real Kakumo and the reality of where he is now. When that happened as well, that was the kind of the time where I was like, this film, over and over, seems to have like absolutely no gripes with outrightly confusing you for a sec. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like I, I think it's it's something that it seems to do repeatedly, is throw something that is immediately kind of not necessarily shocking, but kind of like will just snap your attention alive again, mm -hmm. and it will pose a question that it immediately answers. But it does enough to just I guess pique your curiosity, but in this kind of very sharp, jarring way. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I think it's a great. Uh perspective so thank you uh, uh they have this philosophical discussion kakumo and father lamont he steps on these spikes right before he does that i i, I want to know what you guys think what does he spit out of his mouth is that a cherry tomato i thought it was a pomegranate like a, a pomegranate it's like what is he it's beautiful it's strange but it's like what is that where did it come from you know it's dream logic and that's what you have to sort of accept right and so yeah. kakumo to show he has this discussion with Father Lamont and then he spits out this, it looks like, at first I thought it was like a clown nose, a red <laughs> like object, but it's a tomato or a plum and it lands in slow motion onto one of the spikes and it says, cross over, prove your faith. He, after stepping on the spikes and with the spikes going through his foot, you see him bleed and then he falls face down on them and then it cuts to him in present form on the floor of a laboratory mm -hmm. where he's helped up by the non-dream Kakumo, who is a scientist. And we have to make the immediate connection that Father Lamont is not in a dream anymore. How did he get there? We don't know. But it somehow works as if maybe Father Lamont has been uh, operating on that same sort of hallucinatory drug effect that, that the movie is trying to create for the audience. Uh, that's what I. That's the connection that I make. I, I'm not sure what you guys think. I'm inclined to agree with that, Dean. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I mean, I. I, I, cer I certainly have no better theory. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that one. I just don't want to blow past one of my favourite characters. Just a small character who I really wanted to know a little bit more about. Oh. That's Ecumenical Edmund. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I don't feel he got enough screen time. I. I was kind of. Into it. he's like this huckster that sells religious or fake religious artifacts to nuns yeah he's he's an incredible character i think he's in the film because of uh borman's previous film deliverance because he's so good in that and i think he's great mm -hmm. in exorcist too uh sort of like a maybe an extended cameo and and it's his wife i learned that is the assistant to dr tuscan in the oh, right. in the hospital okay and uh, yeah so Ned Beatty, yeah, plays that character that brings, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he brings Father Lamont 
to the village yeah. that Kuma resides in. Another thing that I love so, so much is when, just after this, when Father Lamont kind of returns to the US, he he turns up like at Sharon's or at Reagan's flat and he's like, he's got this suntan and he's got this African print shirt on that looks yes. like it was bought right, right from the, yes. right from the, the closest tourist shop to the airport. It's hilarious. Like, it uh, is. The only thing he's missing is like a big stuffed head, like a stuffed antelope head under his arm or something. Yes, yes. And he's got a, his, uh, he's got a blue blazer or a black blazer <laughs> over the shirt. It's like... <laughs> It's it's very bizarre and and uh you know and he he shows up wild eyed like I want to where's Reagan and Sharon's like get out and you know it slams the door it's like what <laughs> it's it's like it's it's quite off the wall um, yeah so apparently I mean I can only imagine what audiences thought this was like in, at the time so then we go from Kakumo and then he comes back to right goes to see Sharon and then goes to Washington shortly after doesn't he yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we're headed yeah, yeah we're all here. We're, like everyone's headed to Washington now basically um, and they're traveling in packs we've got um, <laughs> uh, Lamont and uh, Reagan traveling by train and right. uh, when Dr. Tuscan and Sharon realize what's going on they uh plane surely yeah. they'd be there first yeah and oh no no wait 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 we have to back up now this is this is it's very funny it's like new york to washington is is not a long trip but they need to take uh jumbo jets like a uh, uh, big you know <laughs> it's like you do you don't do that it's like why would you take it's a it's a, a quick flight but they make it seem as if they're going across like, you know, oceans to get to this house. So I just wanted to point that out. But that sequence where where they do fly to Washington where Dr. Tuscan and Sharon go, it's quite beautiful. The plane going over those clouds is it still is quite striking an image. As Lamont and Reagan go by train and uh, you know, the the conductor goes stops Reagan as she takes the wallet from Father Lamont. At that point, he seems to be somewhat inexplicably, like, is he possessed at this point? I'm not sure. Uh, this was something I was in the market for a little bit of clarity on, because it's fair to say that from the minute that they set off, he is identifiably not himself. But yeah, I was kind of hoping somebody could clear up for me exactly what it is that's going on there. I, I still don't know. Um, I think it's because, uh, again, like Sharon, it seems like he's going to have a choice to make. Is he going to choose the good or evil? Um, he's because Kakumo saying, he, when Kakumo is in the lab, uh, the, the adult scientific Kakumo is in the lab with Father Lamont, he tells him that uh, it makes a connection between the locusts. We make the connection between the locusts and, and that Father Lamont has been brushed by the wings of evil for taking the journey with the spirit of the air. He has been inadvertently touched by evil and therefore he has to then fight it to break away from it. Right. So that's the, that, that's what I think is going on. So he's been brushed by evil and therefore has become possessed by it. So he's now being controlled by Pazuzu. Can I ask a, a controversial question? Go on. Of course. Who is the heretic of the title? Here. It's Father Lamont's story, so it's it's Father Lamont. Mm. You know, uh, it's not it's not Reagan's story. Reagan is is there to sell the connection to the Exorcist and sell tickets, but I think it's Father Lamont's story. It's his it's his battle. I mean, with good news, he's the one who travels to uncover this. It's his struggle. So I, it, it's Father uh, Lamont. But it never seems to me to be practicing any form of heresy. It seems to be largely altruistic stuff that he's trying to do and largely based on the kind of doctrines of his own faith so it, it never struck it struck me as a kind of odd name no um i'll disagree with you on this point in the sense that uh he by taking the journey with pazuzu he has broken away from the church because that that's what the cardinal tell the cardinal uh flat out says no no what you're doing is he doesn't i don't think he doesn't use the word heresy but he he says no no what you're doing is is uh, you know no 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 you're you're fired we're <laughs> taking your badge away you're going on a retreat and but <laughs> he, he then collar. says no 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 I'm going exactly he turns in his dog collar and then he goes on this journey with the demon now he does it for good but what the film also supposes with the with proposes rather with the opening with the young woman who burns herself to death is that great good attracts great evil. Right. Mm. So I, I think he, I think it's Father Lamont who is the heretic, and then has to prove otherwise. Otherwise, in the sense that you can break away from it. You know, you have to fight against evil. Uh, Pazuzu is back. It, it, 
has never left the world, but we can fight against it. You know, because there's that dialogue that Sharon asks, and like, are they going to make Marin a saint? Mm. And uh, Father Lamont says, you know, no, the world has enough saints. Uh, and I mean, the idea of uh, Lamont being the heretic of the title is kind of like, that's kind of what Dream Kakumo is getting at as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. Dream Kakumo, right. An absolutely <laughs> incredible chain of events befalls everybody on their way to the house here. Um, the taxi yeah. crashes, Tuscan yes. is trapped inside, and Sharon bursts into flames. Yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> It's an amazing, like, and to see it as a teenager, you know, for the first time, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Uh, and I'm not even under the influence of drugs. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing. I, I think it's uh, also a rather beautiful sequence uh, as well as when they're driving in the cab. And well, before they get, they get in the cab and they ask the cab driver, where do you want to go? And they say, 8 Prospect Street. And he stops and he's like, 8 Prospect Street. And they're like, yeah, move it. And so, you know, you can see all, uh, the guy's actually terrified, but he does. And, uh, you know, uh, then it's, again, another crosscut to Father Lamont, who enters the bedroom, Reagan's old bedroom, and he's overcome with locusts. I don't know if the locusts are actually there at the time, but we're made to think they are. And then it sends Tuscan and Sharon and the cab driver crashing into the, into the house, which is kind of a strange... And- <laughs> pretty, pretty much everything that happens from here on out is a wild time. <laughs> <laughs> Please describe it. Don't let me do it. I want to hear. I want to hear you guys talk about this because it's so fucked up. Um, well, I think that uh, I think that if 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 that's the case, if that's what we're doing, then I think that now's as good a time as any to talk about the succubus doppelganger. Absolutely. Yes. What is it? You know what? I have done enough of this keeping this linear and the descriptive thing. Andy, tell us about the succubus doppelganger. I mean, it's Pazuzu. <laughs> okay okay wait a minute wait a minute you say it's position but see that makes sense but when father lamont jumps her right jumps this succubus to- doppelganger mm-hmm. that has become uh it takes on the guise of a reagan you know which is with with uh, glowing eyes and then as he's like wrestling with her on the bed we go the camera sort of zooms into her face and she cries out pazuzu and it's like, well, wait, are you not Pazuzu or are you just a creation of Pazuzu? I'm confused, but it goes by so quickly that it's like, wow, this is fun. And suddenly there are these locusts over the capital of Washington. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, okay, this is cool. You know, and then the bed's hopping around and, and uh, Father Lamont and the succubus doppelganger are, are wrestling. And then the actual Reagan... <laughs> is off to the side and she's just watching the whole thing and then locusts come bursting through the windows and then it becomes a whole on a full on uh, an orgy of locusts I, I yeah and the, yeah. the house the house rips asunder yep, yep. mm-hmm and uh, there's a locust in one of their, it, like, lands in their mouth. And, it, I mean, they're everywhere. And, and then he starts pounding her chest. And he says, you must rip out her evil heart, right? Yeah. So you're making a connection to the heart image of Father Merrin, right? Which happens in, early in the film yeah. Yeah. under the synchronizer. So he rips out her heart. And then it sends the entire house crashing. Uh, Dr. Tuscan is cradling a dying Sharon. And then Father Lamont comes out, gives kind of last rites yeah. to Sharon, who uh, he says is actually good, and and you know she's turned away from evil and kind of apologizes. Doctor Tuscan then understands. She's like, I understand, I understand. And then uh, Lamont goes back to Reagan, and somehow they're standing on the rubble of the house. And I'm not kidding; they walk off into the sunset. Right. Yeah. See, hearing you describe it end to end like that, when I was when I was watching this, I wrote down, "This is quite a melodramatic set piece," and I'm just realizing how much of an understatement that is. It's it's an amazing sequence for so many reasons. I, I mean, just the pyrotechnics of it, I think, are quite amazing for the time period. I think they're it's a lot of fun to watch. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and yet works in the context of the world of this film. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen anything like it, and I think it's it's oddly beautiful in a way too, yeah. um, as absurd as it is. One thing we did forget to mention is that um, Reagan dominates the swarm of locusts with one of those whistly yes. spinny things that the that the Africans use. Oh yes, yeah, yeah it's like it's like the, yeah, it's like a, a kind of like a ritual thing that um, we've seen before, right? Good Kakuma, uh, young Kakuma has driven the locusts away which is the personification, the look is the personification of the demon. And uh, therefore, because of his great goodness, because he was able to drive away locusts with this power, the, the demon 
has possessed him. Uh, so they're making the connection that, of course, that Reagan has this ability too because she saves, or not saves, she makes the autistic child in the institute talk again. Well, so they're really saying that Re- Reagan too is a sa- it has saintly qualities. So at the finale, Father Lamont then says, I-, "I must, we must save the world together." And where they go without the synchronizer, without any money, without any, uh, you know, without the help of the Vatican, without the, without the assistance of the Vatican or Dr. Tuscan or anybody else, uh, you know, they sort of leave. Also, quite, uh, quite blasé mm-hmm. to just turn your back on your, uh, your bummed babysitter, just leave her. Uh, yeah, I mean, she cries. She goes, oh, Sharon, as she's dying. But she's like, yeah, you know, it's a sacrifice that's made for the greater good of, uh, <laughs> of the world. You know? Sure, sure. Can't, yeah, can't advantage. make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Exactly, exactly. Poor Sharon, Sharon, oh, and, and off, off they go. In, in the international cut of the film, this is Father uh, Lamont is, is killed in the ensuing battle with the doppelganger succubus. So all of that is taken away. There is one beautiful shot in, the, in the, the cut that you gentlemen have seen that I do like. It's probably the only shot in the finale of, of the film that I, I think actually is quite nice. You know, it's ridiculous. There's a scene where as Sharon is burning, she runs around the set and goes, somebody help me, help me. Somebody call the, you know, call the, call the police, help, help. And, and then as the house is falling apart with the locusts. And in the international cut, all of that is taken away. But in the cut that you've seen, uh, the camera does this interesting thing. The, the street is empty, but then it does this 180 degree turn on Dr. Tuscan and reveals that the street is full of neighbors and ambulances and police. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's like, whoa, wait a minute. So are they saying that the demon held everybody away and just sort of like kept them in this sort of cocoon of, of what? Like a dreamlike state where nobody could see what was going on and then suddenly everybody was there. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. Did you guys notice this? I mean, I'm not, like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. That's a, like that's like a deeper and a keener eye. Than I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mind telling you that. Andy? Uh, no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't notice that either. You guys think I'm nuts. You guys are like, this guy is just crazy. <laughs> I won't play that far. And w- w- I mean, with that, we're done on The Exorcist 2. Andy, you want to go first on this one? Um, do you know, I think it's worth a look. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's like a masterpiece by any means, but I think it's an interesting, weird companion in a way to the first film. Like I said earlier, it does make this earnest attempt to expand and enlarge the mythology and yeah, it doesn't work all the way, but I still think it's worth a look. And I don't think it's the massive heap of shit that everyone would generally have you believe it to be. Uh, least of all, William Friedkin. Mm. I think that, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the, that the films are similar in any way or anything like that. But my reaction to this kind of brings to mind the reaction that I had when we did an episode way back with uh, Matt Mercer on Halloween Six. Okay. <laughs> in as much as. I took a step back from it and I was like, I'm not sure that I am 100% behind everything that this film is trying to do, but also for having the audacity to try all of those things. It's like, I've got all the time in the world for sequels that earnestly try to build something new, whether I agree with it or not. And I think that, uh, I mean, I, I think this is, I think this is pretty interesting. Like I said, I'd never seen it before. And a lot of the time I watched the film, like uh, not immediately before, but like with not too much time before we record. And I kind of wish I'd had a little bit more time to gather my thoughts on this one, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of one of the reasons why I could see myself going back to it. But I think if I do go back to it, then I will, want to check out the international cut because from the way you're talking about it dean i think that that would probably address some of the things that i'm less taken with in this cut so i think that i'd probably get more out of that but i was braced for this to be an absolute disaster because when you picked it i knew that it wasn't particularly well received i had no idea until i started looking into it a little bit that it was quite so uh, negatively received and that seems incredibly harsh to me i can understand yeah. why people who were looking for more of the same got a real kind of shock from it but it's certainly not bad film and i think that like you say if nothing else i think there's a lot of ambition there that's deserving of some praise and some recognition but that's the thing mitch like this is a film that shouldn't really have existed in a lot of ways because no one wanted to do it to kind of start with the people involved in the original film didn't want to really come back and do it you're bumping up against one of the most successful films of all time certainly one of the most 
well-recognised and most notorious horror films in the world at that time. And on the surface, there's a lot kind of working against The Exorcist 2 from the get-go. And I think that is a big part of why it hasn't worked as well over the years, is that there is such a, a massive love out there for The Exorcist. I think that's maybe why The Exorcist 3 is more well-liked, I think, because it doesn't lean so hard into the same kind of world as this one does. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. Uh, and I, I, if I may add to it, that I think for you know listeners who have not, uh, let's say, who've not seen this and are fans of Zardoz, <laughs> I, I think they'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 an outlandish film, and and I agree. Like The Exorcist three is closer in tone to the first Exorcist, to Friedkin's Exorcist, and um, you know it, it is it, it's a very disconcerting film because it takes such a, a large jump into a different realm than the than the first Exorcist. You know that it takes some getting used to. It's not a successful film, but in pieces and swaths the movie is works by its own internal logic you know and it has amazing set design and cinematography and you know we haven't even talked about Ennio Morricone's crazy prog rock score yeah. <laughs> which yeah. you know uh you know which is tribal and percussive and and it's just it's insane but yet it works within the confines of of this world it's so different from Friedkin's Exorcist that I think it's it's definitely worth seeing for that, and I and hopefully more people will discover it and at least privately can say what they thought if they're not you know or if consider it a guilty pleasure or, or, or whatever. Sure. But I, I think more people are seeing the pleasures that it holds. <laughs> I am very interested to open up the floor and see what the listeners have to say about this one. I think that that's, that's going to be an interesting time. I'm going to sit just because I, like I said, I wasn't aware of precisely how reviled this is. Um, so I'd be curious to know what everyone thought and what they think of it post this conversation as well. I think that's going to be fun. Yeah, please don't come at me. It's, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, I am not saying that this movie is, is great, but I, I think it, you know, go see what it has to offer. Yeah, I do think yeah. it does. Ideas. The point of this show is to look at films that are generally considered to be not that great at times and, and, and kind of decide whether or not we think it deserves another look. And I think it does deserve another look. I think people need to 100%. be a bit more open-minded about The Exorcist too. Like you say, it's not a masterpiece, but there's some interesting stuff in here. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And for that alone, I think it's worth watching. Definitely. Dean, uh, we should take a sec to talk about your film, Swerve. Okay. Which uh, I caught at the digital edition of Fright Fest back in August, and um, Andy caught up with this week because it is now available on uh, Amazon Video in the UK, yes. and on VOD in the yes. UK. So uh, The Swerve, I think, is a, it's a really, really striking film. Uh, I loved it. It's it's one of my favorite films of the year. It's a rough ride, <laughs> I would say, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how it came together? Uh, sure. Um, thank you very much uh, for, for saying that. Um, it started from a, a drawing, a, like a thumbnail sketch I did of a woman in a, a supermarket at midnight. Right. And uh, I just created the character fully around this image and where she came from, what she did. And I think out of my psyche came experiences with the family members and, and women I'd grown up around, uh, that I was raised around, and that their experiences with uh, abuse and mental illness that sort of came to the forefront as I grew older. And that came forward and then coalesced with uh, my love of movies and, and books, Shakespeare and Greek tragedies right. and, uh, and art, and it just came together and, and seemed to work that way for me. So I didn't want to do a straight ahead, like uh, an issue film on mental illness, but the, to, to use the issue filtered through my imagination and uh and love of of a genre you know to mm-hmm. create this character uh named holly who um you know is ruled over by patriarchal forces mm-hmm. you know and not unlike you know what women go through every day all around the world yeah absolutely incredible central performance here as well unreal um from yeah. Missouri sky thank you and obviously uh the film is available like i know what the uk situation is where can people get it um elsewhere uh, in the U.S., it's on um, every major uh, platform, DirecTV, uh, iTunes, Amazon, Fandango, uh, Google Play. Uh, it, it's on quite a few things, quite a few things. Yeah, that, accessible. That accessible, yes, yes. 
very much so. And uh, yeah, I hope they were able to discover it and feel something from it. That's the that's the thing. You know, I know it's a I know it's a challenging film. I know it's a rough ride, and uh, hopefully it stays with viewers a little bit and that they're able to feel something from it. I mean, I think it's great that um, a film like The Swerve closed an event like the Digital Fright Fest, and quite often at the Fright Fest they tend to close on something that's like this wacky or daft or kind of crazy spectacle, and The Swerve mm-hmm. isn't that at all. It's really great to see that the reception that it got kind of off the back of that like everyone was raving about it and it was kind of off the back of that and hearing Mitch talk about it that I I kind of seeked it out myself Uh it was amazing to see a film like The Swerve so well received by that audience Um, that says a lot about the film I think I wasn't you know not being there I only heard about it I actually didn't even we didn't even realize that the movie would be closing the festival I was like Paul McAvoy I, I give him you know, huge props. He's been a, an enormous supporter of it. And, and I, I think he's a genius for doing it. And I think he knew very well what he was doing without sharing that with me because of the response. I, yeah, I, I mean, we had no idea. Um, we didn't know how it would land. I was like, I don't understand. There's a film called Sky Sharks, which I know nothing <laughs> about. And then there's our film there. So I said, you know, the producer was like, well, it looks like our film is very different. So the response has been, you know, pretty spectacular in that in that sense. And we know it's a very challenging film. There's arguments about whether or not it, you know, is it a horror film? Is it, I, I consider the film a psychological horror film. Yeah. Okay. Um, it frightens me uh, in the sense that, you know, mental illness is rather terrifying to me. Mm. In, in the sense that to have this affliction, to be affected by, to have it affect others around you, those closest to even yourself, is a, is a very terrifying prospect to me. To me, that's a real life horror. I know it's not escapist, but escapist horrors don't really, they don't really scare me very much. And, and it's not saying that I won't go into that territory sure. in the future, but this is what I wanted to tackle with this film. And to me, it's, it's a psychological horror film in the vein of something like, uh, I suppose, like Repulsion or Polanski's The Tenant. Or... Mm-hmm. Dean, this has yeah. been uh, a blast. I've really enjoyed uh, talking both The Swerve and The Exorcist too with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, man, thank you so uh, much. Thank you. thank you, gentlemen. Where can people get you on uh, social media? Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. Yeah. I am not the heaviest participator in these mediums, but I am there and you can reach me and I have been more active, fortunately and unfortunately lately. Uh, so I am active on there and you can get a hold of me if you're, if you'd like, I appreciate it. And I, I love that you guys have me on and have me talking about this absurd, beautiful film. Exorcist 2, I mean. And, uh, and I look forward to hearing some, uh, you know, your future episodes too. Oh, thank you very much. I don't know about you, I had a great time with that one. I did, I really enjoyed it, and it was nice to revisit The Exorcist too. actually. It was it was nice. I maintain, I think especially, and I did kind of think it before, but I think having heard what both of you guys had to say about it as well, I th- I'm glad that I didn't watch The Exorcist again first. Yeah, I, I do think it would sever your enjoyment of The Exorcist too a little bit. Like I said, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, the fact that he was able to watch this and let it be its own beast was probably to its benefit, but also probably to mine. Sure, yeah, mm-hmm. Um, I would say, but huge thank you to uh, Dean Capsalis, director of The Swerve, joining us tonight to talk The Exorcist 2 and his own great film, which is available on VOD platforms in the UK and the States, so go check that out. Yeah, I can't recommend The Swerve enough, it's really great. However, that's it for another one, as we get ever closer to uh, the end of October and Halloween. Oh, and my birthday. And your birthday, yeah. Big Foro, how you feeling? Uh, terrible. I can feel the, the, the sword of Damocles dangling over my head. <laughs> We do have a fair bit of business to take care of between now and then, though. First and foremost, we will have a mini-sode for you on Monday, of course. We will be talking about what we've been watching. Uh, we'll be getting to the absolute end game of the 90s side quest. We'll be playing Mitch's pitches, letting you know everything you need to know about next week's episode, which is going to be great, too. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, there are loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email scenes at gmail.com. Yep, and check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash strong language violent scenes big thanks to everyone who joined us last week for our live zoom watch along uh we had a great time you too can be involved in the next one all you need to do is go over to our patreon and have a wee look chuck some coin our way yeah lots of good stuff going on over there more content coming up very soon on the feed for that as well and don't forget of course if all of this 
is not enough and you need more you can't interact with other listeners as well on our facebook group the chud locker yeah however we're back this monday with another mini so join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.